And on November the 29th, 1947, as we were waiting and listening to the uh, counting of the United Nations, um, I was um, called into a darkened room and had to put our hand on a Tanakh and swear allegiance to the Haganah. Shalom from Jerusalem, and welcome back to another episode of the Corrent Podcast. Now, it's an incredible time of year in, here in Israel. Already since before Pesach, Israeli flags have begun appearing, hanging from lampposts and apartment buildings, and now from car windows, schools, and kindergartens. We just had the Yom HaShoah last week when we stand to attention at the sound of the siren and consider the miracle of the generation that we live in today. This week, we mark Yom HaZikaron and remember the silver platter, as the poet Natan Altman describes it, upon which we were given a Jewish state, and straight away transi- transition to the jubilation of Yom Ha'atzmaut, celebrating the miraculous events of the past 74 years and in our times today. When considering who we could invite to help us prepare for this roller coaster of a time of year, we were honored that Asher Kaling Gold agreed to meet us and share with us his experiences of the events of the past 74 years and beyond. Asher may be familiar to some of our listeners as the brother-in-law and closest friend of the late Yehuda Avner Zichronol Evracha, author of The Prime Ministers, published by the Toby Press, though some also may be familiar with the story and heroism of his sister, Esther Kalingold, who fell in battle in the War of Independence in 1948. Like us, perhaps some of our listeners may have heard of Asher through his leadership in the religious Zionist world, particularly in Bnei Akiva, UK, and through several positions of shlichut over the years in the UK, USA, and South Africa. But to those that haven't heard of Asher before, and even those that have, we are sure that, like us, you'll find this conversation inspiring and, quite frankly, at times, mind-blowing. So, without further ado, here's our conversation with the legendary Asher Kalingold. We are delighted to well to be joining Asher Kalingold uh, here in his apartment in uh, Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. Asher, thank you so much for for having us here in your home. My pleasure. Um, so to get us started, I, I guess we'll start from the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you, where you were born, um, where your family came from? Where does the story start for you? Well, it's an interesting story actually because I think I can say in built true honesty that we were an exceptional family in England at the time, not today, at the time, in the sense that my father's parents and his brothers and sisters and many cousins came in early in the 1920s. You see, the thing that people don't remember is that the Germans invaded Poland in the First World War and my late grandfather, Naftali, um, owned a bookshop, a Hebrew bookshop, is in Warsaw, and a group of German soldiers came in, looked around, threw the books, including Sifrei Torah, on the floor, stabbed on them, and did worse. Um, and at that moment, my grandfather said, "This is the end. Europe has no future for the Jews." Now I'm talking about 1919, 1920, shortly after the First World War, and he said, "We're all leaving." Now, um, and they did. The whole family left and came to Palestine, <laughs> Israel. Um, around 19, by 1925, there was nobody left anymore in Poland. Um, now, 
In my father's case, it was somewhat more dramatic. <clears throat> In about the same time, shortly after the First World War, 1919 or 1920, um, he was walking along a street in Warsaw and he saw a Polish soldier beating up an old Jew, which was quite common. Now, my dad was not exactly uh, a Tarzan. He was quite a short guy, but he had a lot of guts. And he threw the Polish soldiers over and let the Jew escape. And his friends who were with him, he said, Moshe, run, run, the, 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 the police will come. And they hid him somewhere overnight in somebody's home. And that night he crossed the border to Germany. And he came, and from there he came to England. Now, how is it he came to England? There was a fluke. The year before, in 1919, he was invited to come to London to speak at the founding conference of Young Mizrahi, which I always think of as being, in a sense, the forerunner of Bnei Akiva. Uh, well, Bnei Akiva was founded in 1929 in Poland, but in England, you know, there was nothing of that type at all. There was Mizrahi, but it was a political, boy-bound political movement. But there began a young Mizrahi, and he came as a delegate to speak at the founding conference. There was only one problem. He didn't know any English. So he thought, you know, like most of his colleagues and so on, he addressed them in Hebrew. And after a few minutes, he realized nobody understood a word of what he was saying. But nevertheless, he continued. Um, in the audience was my mother, who fell in love with him at first sight, but that's already another story, as they say. Um, but that's how the following year, after this, after 1919, when he had to run away because of this problem with the Polish soldier, he still had a visa to come to England. So from Germany, he made his way to London. Um, again, as I say, not knowing a word of English, um, went into a post office. He wanted to send a telegram to his family to say that he's arrived safely. And he saw a youth with a beard, uh, with a young daughter, and he went up to him and said, uh, in Yiddish, can you help me to send a telegram? So the daughter helped him. And they, of course, invited him for Shabbos to come home, you know, as he didn't do. That's the way we are. And uh, there he met my mother. And as they say, the rest is history. So um, that's how he came to England. But we care. I mean, uh, as I say, all his family came straight here. Now, we were different in the sense that um, we were a religious Zionist family before people really knew what that was. Um, and as I say, I felt, you know, there were no, virtually no Jewish schools in those days. There was the Jewish school, what they call the JFS, the Jewish Free School, but it was uh, not exactly for, for you know, uh, for a serious young man, as they say. And so we, we had Hebrew classes in the evening and even a private uh, teacher who came to teach us, teach me Gemara and so on. But um, um, this, this was the background in which we uh, grew up in a f home where I can honestly say that the first songs I learned as a young kid were Shirei Tzion. In Ivrit, which I didn't really know as a language, but I already got the grasp of the, without really, really absorb the basics of a language without even really knowing the language. And uh, we grew up in this atmosphere, always knowing that one day we were to make our home here, as had my father's family. And but for the grace of God, so would he have been 
Had it been not been for this incident with the Polish soldier? Yeah. And a bit about your family structure, siblings. Yeah. No. Um, my mother was born in England, um, so the language at home was English. My father was one of these people who spoke Polish and Yiddish and and Hebrew and German and whatever. Um, but my mother knew English, so that was it. That we spoke English at home. Um, <clears throat> we were three of us in the family. Um, two sisters, older, and I was the youngest the brother. Um, and my father insisted that we didn't have any English names. It was Esther, Miriam, and Asher. And we never knew we had any other names. And as you can imagine, um, as a result of which at school, you know, people quite laughed at me, you know. What sort of name is Asher? What sort of name is that? And, then, and I used to walk around, I think, a little bit with my head down, I think. Uh, but then something amazing happened. A new head teacher came to the school, um, and he got up on the platform and he introduced himself in the assembly, in the school assembly. Um, he gave us his name and so on and so forth. And as he finished, he said, will the boy called Asher Koenigold stay behind after the assembly? And I was, must have been seven or eight years at the time. Oh my God, what have I done? And I stayed behind and he beckoned me to come up to the platform uh, and he got up down, he, he said, I want to shake the hand of the boy with this beautiful Hebrew name, biblical name that I never heard. And that's when I began to lift my shoulders up and think of myself as being as a proud Jew. Um, living in rather an educational atmosphere which was very much non-Jewish. We lived in Stanford Hill at the time, which was then very much a center of Jewish, the Jewish population. Um, but as I say, we were, as we say in Hebrew, we were exceptional in that we, in my father's background, we were very much a Zionist family, or if you like, a Mizrahi family of Orthodox Zionists. Before we carry on with your story and your family story, I'd, I'd like to ask, what was, it, what was it like? What were your experiences as a religious Zionist family in, in the UK in the 20s and 30s? How did that manifest itself? I mean, nowadays, there's thankfully a, a vibrant Anglo-Jewish religious Zionist community in the UK. Um, but back then, as you say, you were you were yotzed off and you were out of the ordinary. So how did that manifest? Like, what what were you doing at home? What was your home life like? How was Israel spoken about? Well, the, I think it was a bit of a dichotomy. I lived a double life. Life at home was. Very, very, very Jewish. Our grandparents still were still alive at the time. They lived with us. Uh, I spoke Yiddish with my grandparents. Um, and the Friday night table was very much mirot. And without, you, it's like by osmosis, you, you, you um, absorb um, a lot more Hebrew than you think you really know. So when it came time to learn Hebrew, it was, for me, relatively easy compared with many of my compatriots. Um, as a spoken language, Hebrew is a spoken language. But the home was, uh, was a very, very Jewish home. Not only because of my grandparents, but mainly because of my father. And um, as I say, his introduction of, of, of Zionist songs at the table and so on. And the knowledge that I had family living here. I mean, 
who had family living in, quotes, quotes, Palestine at that time? But I did, all my father's family. So that was something which, in a sense, I always knew that I was going to um, enjoy one day. And I remember as being a kid before the Second World War, probably at the age of what it was, I was nine when the war broke out, so I must have been seven, eight, nine years old, when my father told me, you're not going to go to secondary school, as they called it then. What they call it today? Technology. Still? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, here in England, you're going to go to Antwerp, to the Tachkamori school in Antwerp. Tachkamori was, religious Zionist was a Mizrahi school. And I thought, well, how the hell, I'm going to leave home and go to Antwerp? I don't know the language there, I don't know any language. Anyway, the war broke out and that, of course, forget Antwerp and Tachkamori school. So I was brought up, in a sense, completely in non-Jewish schools. But of course, my father made sure that beyond the Hebrew classes, which most Jewish kids went to, um, I always had a private teacher who taught me Gemara and, and much deeper knowledge of Judaism than I would otherwise have had. My dad was always too busy. He was always busy with his work and so on, except for Shabbat, of course, where we enjoyed his, uh, his table and his, uh, his songs, his swingot, etc., etc. But basically, that was the atmosphere in which I grew up, and I took it as, as natural, as, that's, that's as it should be. I didn't know anything else, let's put it that way. Yeah. Mm. You, mentioned, I mean, you mentioned your sisters before. Um, you've written a book about um, Esther, your older sister. Um, can you tell us, I guess at this point, tell us a little bit about Esther and her story, yeah. I guess, yeah. what unfolded, I guess, from this time? <laughs> Well, Esther, again, was, if the family was unusual, Esther was, was, was the most unusual of all, in the sense that um, she was very attached to the young people who came from Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, the, before the Second World War, mainly on the kinder transport program, and um, was immensely impressed by the fact that the girls learn Torah, not just the, the boys. Uh, you know, German Jewry was a lot more advanced than English Jewry was, but they influenced English Jewry enormously, particularly in the sense that um, they gave real meaning to the movement called Bnei Akiva. Now, Bnei Akiva existed. I remember as a kid, I must have been six or seven, going to something called Bnei Akiva, which was a product of some of the younger members of the Mizrahi movement, the young Mizrahi movement. But it was a bit of a, you know, a thing you do for the Shabbat or Sunday afternoon. But when the youngsters came from Germany and set up Hachshavot in England, and when I say Hachshavot, it wasn't just a Bahad farm, which of course was the centerpiece of it all, but they're all over the country. And more importantly, in London particularly, well actually London and Manchester, they set up uh, one was in Stamford Hill, the other was in Wilson and Wilson Lane, and um, Manchester had a Merkaz Limud. Uh, for a time, there was a house in Glasgow in Scotland and so on, and they became a sort of magnet for people like me and my age and older and younger of uh, somewhere to go on a Shabbat afternoon and a Sunday afternoon. And, uh, and, of course, we were enamored uh, and enormously impressed 
and influenced by these people. And before I knew where I was, I was 15, I was really a Matricha with a keyboard, and, and it became really uh, essentially a part of my life. And I believe, I truly believe, that Bnei Akiva perhaps became the most important and influential um, factor in the life of not only Anglo-Jewry, but particularly Anglo-Jewry. We always used to look down on the Americans. There was Bnei Akiva there, and there was Bnei Akiva in France and so on. But people who were serious, who really wanted to prepare themselves for Aliyah, always came to England. The Bechat family, we had, we had youngsters who came from Morocco to England, uh, to the Hachshara, yeah. to Thaxted. And uh, it became a powerful movement. So Esther, went, she went through B'nai Akiva as well in England? Or? Esther went to, through B'nai Akiva. As you know, there was something called Bahad for the, seri- the senior, the old, older people. And um, the first opportunity she had, um, she came here. Now, what was the opportunity? Of course, there was no Aliyah. Uh, the British had stopped the Aliyah by then, the, the, the infamous white paper or number of white papers. And one day, and I can almost see it to this day or hear it to this day, um, it was a Shabbat lunchtime, <clears throat> and she'd been reading the Jewish Chronicle. And she saw an advert saying, uh, school in Jerusalem, girls high school in Jerusalem looking for an English teacher. And she by then had graduated, she was a very, very clever girl, uh, young lady. Um, by 20, she had a BA degree and a teacher's license. And said, that's exactly what I'm looking for, because that was one way to get, the, get there. Because the, Ang- the, the, the school was the Evelina de Rothschild School, which was a, sponsored by the Anglo-Jewish Association. A non, at that time, a non-Zionist organization, but they had it was a philanthropy to them to sponsor a girls' high school in Jerusalem. And she answered the advert, immediately got the job. And in November 1946, she arrived in, in Israel, in Palestine, and fell in love with the country. I mean, this, I think, uh, letters that appear in the book that I wrote about her, and she's quoted as saying, um, to me, it, was, it was like love at first sight. Um, everything about, she couldn't bear to hear any criticism about the country. And every spare moment she traveled all over the country, particularly to the kibbutzim. Um, We recently, really fairly recently, we knew that she had a a boyfriend. Um, The only way we knew it was that in her last letter, she writes, someone who was very dear to me passed away today, and that left a very deep impression. Um, and it discovered that it was someone who was from Pride Zion, where she had visited. She met this young guy who had come there from South Africa. So, she, if you like, I don't know what I can say whether she fell in love with a person, but she certainly fell in love with the country. And you couldn't hear a word of criticism about what's happening, although things here were very, very difficult. You know, there was sincere rationing in England during the Second World War, but by the time she got here, it was the same thing was happening here. Actually, when we came here as well, it was still food was very short. You got one egg in it a week, and so on and so forth. Once, when, when Esther had announced that she was, she was coming uh, to, to Israel, what was the feeling in the house? Like your parents who had imbued you with this 
Zionist ideology? Was it, I, I imagine it would have been bittersweet, obviously, you know, seeing one of their children off, uh, you know, to, leaving home at all is, is obviously a, a bittersweet moment and then to come here. Was it like a, a really big point of pride for your parents? My mother took it badly. Uh, she couldn't imagine how a young 20-year-old single girl would go to Palestine. But for my father, it was a sense of great pride, so much so that he brought her here. And sadly to say, my mother more than once accused him of taking their daughter here. But, um, and he was very proud that she got the job. And even more proud that, of course, there, was, there were no smartphones in those days and so on. But the, her letters were amazing. I mean, she used to write two, two or three times a week at some times. And it was always full of excitement. Of I, I visited today Tiratsvi. And there I saw, uh, I met Tsvi, uh, somebody, well, I can't remember his name, and, and somebody else who had come to England. And it was so exciting to meet him again and meet, there was a small garin of English uh, who came to Tiratsvi to meet them and so on. It was uh, an amazing experience for her. Um, and it was therefore not surprising in retrospect <clears throat> that in one of her letters she wrote, um, I think there were more important things than... than uh, they're teaching young girls English. So I began to volunteer with the Haganah. Now, of course, my mother was totally shocked. My, my, my father didn't speak about it. But I think in his sense, he felt a, a sense of pride that his daughter, although it was mixed because he was never in favor of girls going to the army, but his daughter did. And the one in which he was, you know, was so proud of his, of his eldest child, I bet the first she was very low-key. She was just volunteering. Um, again, when I was writing the book and interviewing people and asking about her and so on, one of the first things she did was to uh, accompany uh, the young men in the Haganah who were going on guard duty, and um, the British would stop every young man, Jewish man they saw, and search them for arms, and she would hide the, hide the boys a pistol or whatever he had under her clothing so that he wouldn't be caught. And they would walk along like a boyfriend and girlfriend, although she'd never met the guy before and probably never again afterwards, but it was all part of the, um, of the system. Um, I jumped back for a minute to England and recall <clears throat> that there was a Haganah in England. Um, very few people know this. I've spoken about this a number of occasions, and people are always amazed and sometimes even shocked. Um, the, there were a number of uh, young men, as far as I know, I don't think there were any women, who'd come to London to um, do a PhD degree, um, mostly the, the LSE, London School of Economics, um, and... Uh, They'd only been, been permitted to leave, although it was all illegal, but nevertheless it was still the, the, the power of, 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 the, of Agadar particularly was enormous. And they only agreed that these people could leave the country 
on condition that they worked and formed the Haganah in Britain, which they did. And on November the 29th, 1947, as we were waiting and listening to the uh, counting of the United Nations, um, I was called into the movement office, actually eight of us, from four from B'nai Akiva, three from Abunim, and one from Mashavata'ir, to we were recruited into the Haganah. And it's almost, you know, when I talk about it, I think, you know, you sound stupid, but it is true. We were each um, called into a darkened room and had to put our hand on a Tanakh and swear allegiance to the Haganah. I was 17. I didn't know what it was all about. But, you know, it was exciting. Yeah. Think the young people do. Uh, our duties were to recruit people for... Um, uh, for uh, uh, and to buy um, pieces of equipment which could be useful to be, to be sent for the well of course you couldn't buy arms but there was something called uh, army surplus stores in, in England at the time and they had all sorts of pieces of equipment which were useful uh, spades and 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 so on and so forth which of course we would go from store to store, buying one of each and, and uh, back giving them in and so on. Yeah. And there was one particular incident which, uh, again, I have to pinch myself to remember that it, that it really happened. And one, one of the guys from Habudim, his father, he was a bit older than us, his father had a, um, a garage with, with the trucks, you know, moving trucks. And he had already a, a driving license. And he and I were, he was told to pick up one of his father's trucks. And I was to join him. And we were told to leave London and go to somewhere in the country, I can't remember where, not far from London, and stop at a certain place where there was a, a public phone box, wait there and get a phone call, blah, 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 I made it short. And we were told to, um, move a little bit further away from this box and go into uh, behind a fence um, where there were boxes to lift up the boxes to put them on this guy's vehicle and to take them to uh, a warehouse in London and leave them there and not ask any questions. And it turned out that in those boxes was a huge amount of money and they were there to buy a Spitfire plane, which was dismantled and sent across the channel and sent here. You know, one of the amazing stories of those days, which you think, you have to convince yourself that it's not fiction, but it is. I mean, it isn't. It's, it's, it's part of, the, of the, the, the story of those days. What are your memories of that, that time, 1947, 1948, both from, I guess, a perspective of religious Zionist Jew watching what was happening in Israel, but also as a brother with a sister who's there on the ground. Yeah. What's going on? Well, from, from that moment onwards, virtually, I stopped going to school. My parents didn't know, but I, I stopped going to school. And I spent all my time doing what I was being asked to do, looking for people. You see, we, only, we didn't just have to look for people to recruit. By the way, do, do you know people in Lavi? Mm -hmm. Do you know Sheila Kritzler? I've heard of yeah. Well, she, uh, her, her, her late husband was the big macho in the movement in those days. 
And um, Sheila and I were partners in this Haganah business. And um, uh, we, we, we had to find people, mainly World War II veterans, mainly people like pilots, naval crew, who were, we had very, very few uh, naval personnel here, um, artillery people, tankists and so on, um, and persuade them to come and, but not only recruit them, but we had to follow them up to find, because there was, the Haganah was scared that the British would, would plant um, agents amongst those volunteers. So when we found someone and we talked to him and so on, um, the next thing we did was um, to actually see whether he was going to the address that he'd given. In other words, was he really a genuine person or was he, or was he someone? And fortunately, I mean, we, we managed to overcome any of those problems. Um, and you're doing this as a 17, 18-year-old boy. It's exciting. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you suddenly feel a sense of enormous importance, which, of course, was enormously exaggerated, but you feel as if you're taking part. Now, I'll, I'll take it a step further and say that by then I knew there was no future for me in England, but there was one big problem. I was about to be 18, and I was recruited into the British Army. There was compulsory service in those days. Um, and I was determined not to serve with the Jewish army, in the British Army. Um, and, uh, and I had arranged to go on ADR on, I think it was Wednesday the 1st of June, 1948. And the previous Sunday, um, I was on a London Underground train on my way to give my final report to uh, the Israeli who was in charge, who was the person I referred to. By the way, they were all called Mr. Gross. <laughs> I know his name is Mr. Gross, but you know, the, the expression Yiddish, Moshe Gross, I suppose, that was why they were given this name. Yeah. I discovered afterwards that all, they were all called Mr. Gross. <laughs> but anyway, I was on my way in the underground when someone who I knew, uh, he was a sort of marginal member of, of Bahad. He asked me whether I'd seen the, that daily paper, that Sunday paper. And I said, no. And he showed me, and there was a headline, two London girls killed in the fighting in Jerusalem or something like that. Um, and the name of someone called Sylvia Bayrak, who was a Habonian member, and my sister Esther Kalingol. And there was I in the London underground. And we about to leave. My father was on a boat on the way to America on business. And I had to go home and tell my mother. And they contacted my father, and he flew back from New York. <clears throat> and of course I had to postpone my earlier. I couldn't leave them in that, in that situation. I remember the, we, we asked Shailat uh, Rab whether we should sit Shiva, and he said, you can't until you hear it from a Jewish source. And we did, on that Friday, the Jewish Chronicle published um, an article about what had happened from the correspondent in Jerusalem. And um, we sat Shiva for one hour because it was Erev Shavuot. Um, and then the call-up came, and I couldn't leave my parents. And I spent, spent, wasted close to two years doing nothing in the British Army. This was after the Second World War, and um, I remember when we, 
had to report to a certain depot or whatever in London, and an officer came around and said, anyone, put up your hands, anyone here who, who, who studied in high school? And I was about one of four or five people who did. In those days, people used to leave school at 14. Yeah. Um, and we were sent to a unit which was, um, uh, went to a place called Devices in Wiltshire, which was uh, catching up or, or on the records of the Second World War, which had been neglected. So we used to get a, a, a weekly, weekly schedule of, uh, of um, a work to do on a Monday morning uh, for the rest of the week. And by Tuesday afternoon, latest Wednesday morning, we'd finished it all, and we spent the rest of the time playing darts and Monopoly and things like that. You can imagine, complete waste of time. Yeah. But that was my destiny, and there was nothing I could do about it. But I was demobbed out of Pesach, and the day after Pesach, I came here. Um, and that's 1950. Um, <clears throat> I came here to the Machon de um, here in Jerusalem, and uh, it was the most amazing time. Actually, I, the, the, the course wasn't due to start until September, but I did that. I said, nothing more to do in England, finished with England. And I came here and I went straight. What I had found, my grandfather was still alive then in Tel Aviv and uncles and aunts. I went to stay with them for a while. And then I went up to La Vie and spent about four months in La Vie um, doing Sikul. Do you know what Sikul is? No? La Vie is situated at the foot of um, uh, Kaune Chitin, yeah. which was a, uh, a volcanic uh, thing. And all the, all the land of La Vie was covered in millions of stones. So you couldn't do anything. You couldn't build, you couldn't do it or grow anything without all these stones being one by one removed and stacked at the side and then the tractor would come along and, and so on. So that was what I did for most of the time. was yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. And afterwards, a little bit of taking part in building the first houses and so on. Even, like, even just the, the slapping stones. Slapping stones, with, yeah. But that, that for you was more... That wasn't a waste of time. That would, even if it's like you know manual, mean, well, the, manual labor is a complete like a world uh, away from what you spent two years. What I've been used to, but I have to say that the people in charge then, that he was responsible for all this, Michael Michael, Michael Mitvoch, I remember, had enough sense to um, uh, to realize that you know there was a limit to how much cool we could do. So they put us also onto. A bit, digging and building the foundations of the first houses of the kibbutz. Lavi at that time is where Odayot is today, the, the youth village. Mm -hmm. um, and we were building the, what today is Lavi, is on the next hill, adjacent hill. So we would go out every day from Odayot to think to dig and build the, the foundations of cement mixes and so on and so forth. That was real physical labor. <laughs> yeah. Was it like, as a British, as, as, a, as a Zionist Jew, living in Britain, where the British had been, in, in Israel at least, had been pretty much the enemy. They'd, they'd been preventing Aliyah, they'd been harassing the Jews who were living here. And so you're sort of taking an active part in the founding of the state but from, from within Britain. Well, I'll put it this way. It took me many years to stop hating the British. 
I spent many years after I retired volunteering at Yad Vashem. And my role was to, to guide the VIPs from around the world who came to Israel and came to visit Yad Vashem. And I remember one day I had a British general and um, at the end of the museum in Yad Vashem there's a huge picture of the Exodus. Um, and I stood in front of this picture and I said to him, look, after what we have seen in the museum, can you believe that on that ship were 4,500 Holocaust survivors and your army dragged them physically off the boat and put them onto prison ships and sent them back to Hamburg in Germany. And there was silence. And then he said to me, tell me, will you ever be able to forgive us like you, like you forgave the Germans? And I stood there with my mouth open and I, I didn't know what to say. And then I said to him, who ever told you that we forgave the Germans? I said, we haven't got any argument with you, but we will never, ever, ever forgive the, 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 that generation of Germans. The Nazi, Hitler, of course, and the Nazi party, and the collaborators from other countries too, Lithuanians and Ukrainians and so on and so forth, who massacred Jews simply because they were Jews. Uh, I, I became almost pathologically anti-English. And it was, as I say, only many years later when I realized that it was, it was stupid. I mean, you know, it's like, well, it's equivalent, as I say, to the, uh, equivalent to asking a 20-year-old German, you know, saying, I won't speak to you. As many, but there are many Jews, there are Holocaust survivors who never set foot in, my father would never set foot in Germany for anything, although he used to go to Germany on business until the outbreak of the war, but he'd never set foot in Germany. Because by my generation, things have changed without any question. I don't know if chronologically this is the best time, but perhaps just, I guess, talk a little bit, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your other sister, Miriam. Um, where was she when, how does she fit into this kind of the story so far? Yeah. <clears throat> Well, she lives here in Jerusalem, you know. Um, the best thing that Mimi ever did in her life was to marry my best friend. <laughs> um, Yuda, or Gubi as we called him, had come to the Machon Bertich Yerutzlaritz, and um, he was from Manchester, I'd never met him before. And one Friday night, we had uh, begun in the North London Bight, and uh, this fellow came out to me and he said, you're actually kidding? I said, yes. He said, I want to talk to you about your late sister. And he'd met her here and even described the big cafe of Ben Yehuda here in Jerusalem where he sat with her on a number of occasions and had coffee before she went into the old city. And uh, he became my best friend. And of course, I invited him home for Shabbat and he met my sister, Mimi, and the rest is history. Um, uh, Mimi was different from Esther and I. Um, she was much more of an Anglo-Jewish lady uh, or young woman, young girl. Um, <clears throat> but of course, growing up in a family like that, by the way, so was my mother. Um, unusually for those days, I had a mother who was born in England. My, her parents came to England at the end of the 19th century and she was born in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and she was very much an English lady. 
And so was Mimi. Esther and I were different. We, we were caught by the Zionist bug <laughs> very, very early on. And of course, you know the, what happened later on. Um, but nevertheless, she, I, it's, it's my fault. I brought him home for Friday night meal. <laughs> He's better than my sister. And, uh, and I had four wonderful children and so on and so forth. Um, so, was she also with you? When did she come to Israel? Now she, she, I tell you exactly when. Um, Edna and I were married in 1955, and she now Yuda came with Aliyah, the end of 1954, um, and Mimi, my sister, was left behind because she stayed behind. No, not left behind. She stayed behind because she wanted to come to my wedding which was in February 1955. So, um, February 1955, um, I got married, and shortly afterwards, after Sheberbach and so on, Mimi was ready to go to, uh, to join her husband in lovely. And there's a weird story. Um, I by then had a driving license which is not as simple as it says, I'm saying it, but I remember it was a hard thing to get in those days. Lots and lots of lessons, and I was lucky I, I passed the first time. My driving instructor told me that I was going to get married. He said, I'll make sure your wedding present will be that you have a driving license, and I did. So I had a driving license, and um, my father asked me to rent a car, hire a car, and to take my sister to the airport. And on the way back, um, the, this, the car stopped <clears throat> the, the traffic light on Oxford Street it's weird how you remember these details <laughs> and uh, my father turned to me and he said you know you're a good driver I said well, he wasn't a man for compliments and I said thank you thank you and he said well I'll do a deal with you if you stay behind and help me in the business I'll buy you a car and I stopped breathing. <laughs> and I said to him, Dad, are you serious? You're telling me to swap Aliyah for a car? And he said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of that, that story. Um, I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about looking, I guess, at the Corin link? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, I guess, your relationship with Mimi and with Yehuda and with sort of how you recall Yehuda's experiences and his, you know, the things that he writes about in the book. It'd be interesting to hear kind of your perspective of, of some of the, I think, things that he talks about. Well, I, I, I think that the dramatic moment was on that Friday night in the uh, Binyan in, in, um, uh, in the Biden uh, of Bnei Akiva and Kaisenhof Road. He came out to me and introduced himself. I didn't know him. And he said... I want to tell you about your sister Esther. Um, and he, we talked and talked and talked and talked and walked home and he was with the, the Friday night and so on. And we clicked immediately. Um, I think that he was one of the many people. Um, when I say many people, I mean into the second and third generation who were influenced by Esther's story. I can't tell you how many males practicing for you much more <laughs> um, how many males 
uh, emails and, um, and other phone calls I get from people who want to hear about her story, a first-hand sort of thing. Um, and he told me, uh, he was, in fact, I would say he's probably the last person who saw her and spoke to her before she went into the old city. And uh, he told me that he said, tried to say to her, do you know what you're doing? The place is so dangerous. How does she actually get into the whole city? It's, uh, people don't know. I don't think even the peers in any of the literature. Um, she was, she volunteered by them for that gala, stopped teaching and was doing full-time work. As I said, she was accompanying the boys and, uh, and doing shmira. She was stationed at the, by that stage in the Schneller camp here in Jerusalem, the headquarters of Haganah. <clears throat> and, um, and she began to hear about the sad story of the, um, of the, the situation in the, in the Jewish quarter of the old city. Um, and then she heard, yeah, I don't think it was in the paper, she heard that the British would allow were looking for teachers to volunteer to go into the old city because there were children who had been left behind by their parents who'd come to work in West Jerusalem and couldn't get back because there was a, a siege. The British wouldn't let anyone in. And they were looking for teachers to go into the old city. But she jumped at the chance. And she went into the old city. And as I say, really, the, you can say the rest is history. It really is. And she immediately... Oh, by then, by the way, she'd already been battle-hardened. She'd fought in, in what, what became Kibbutz Tova um, and in the Reyakov, which was then an outpost in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Um, she'd insisted on learning how to use weapons. She was officially um, the company cook. Uh, she was a religious girl. She knew how to cook, and she knew how to keep kasher, and they were religious soldiers, so... They used as the company cook, but she insisted also learning. To, in the spare time, she learning to. And when the units were attacked, she would take a rifle and, and shoot back. And she turned out to be a, an, ex, an expert sniper, and became a combat soldier. Um, in, and as she wrote in one of her letters, um, if anything happens to me, please understand that three girls can do as much as the boys can. And since uh, uh, manpower is short, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's all in the last letter, I think. Um, so um, she developed from a company cook to being a frontline soldier. And when they were looking for teachers to go into the old city, she signed on immediately and went in with the last British convoy to go into the old city um, with a group of teachers. One of them, by the way, was... And if the name is into you, Shaya Shuka Coin, who's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the previous rabbi of, of late rabbi, chief rabbi of Haifa. Yeah. Um, he was one of those, he was a Talmud in, in, in the Shivat Hebron, mm -hmm. and uh, he was one of those who came in with her. He was the one, by the way, who gave us the evidence of what of her last words. You probably may have read about it in the book, I don't know if you have. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, he, he was lying wounded next to her on a stretcher next to her. And it was a Friday evening, Shabbat was already in, and her friend, um, Shulam Velikovsky, her father was a great friend of my, my father, and uh, the two of them, the Davan Shabbat Tabat, and she was groaning with pain apparently, and one of the boys offered her a cigarette. 
And she stretched out her hand and she said, Lo Shabbat Ayum. And this was Shaya Shuv who heard us say this and told us about it many years later when I was gathering material for the book about her. And um, as I say, these were her last words. And my father went into deep decline. He was a man with a tremendous sense of humor. He told the most amazing jokes, some of them times in Yiddish, or we translate into English, but he was always laughing. He, he was in a good mood. And then my sister was killed, and he really went into a decline. And the next time I saw him smiling and even laughing was, I always promised him when I went to Aliyah, that if, God forbid, he ever needs me, not well, he should let me know and I'll come immediately to England. Which is what happened when I came back for the Six Day War. I fought in the, uh, the infantry unit in the battle for the Golan Heights. I wasn't certain I was going to come back, let's put it that way. We had a lot of casualties in our unit. And um, I came back and I heard that my father was, he had heart problems, and he was seriously ill. And um, he, he'd written to me to say, um, I told him I'm going to come to help. And they asked me to go to a sofer in here, a sofer stump here in Yerushalayim, and get from him a supply of Mezuzot and Tfilim for his business, because during the war period, in the lead-up to the war, he hadn't been able to get anything and to bring them to London. And I had a, a sudden inspiration. I picked up these Tfilim Mezuzot, Meir Sharim, and I took them to the Kotel. I said a prayer at the Kotel, and I, the package touched the Kotel, and I got off the plane in London, and my dad was waiting for me. And I said, Abba, we always argued. He said, we'll never take it back. We'll never get it back. It'll never be ours, and blah, 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 etc. I have to wait for the Mashiach. And I said, these trillion numbers of thought came to the plane straight from the Kotel, and I'm handing them to you. They've come from the Kotel. And that's the first time I saw him smile in all the 19 years since Esther was killed. Drama. <laughs> it is. It's personal drama, but yeah. Um. Okay. So I, I, I have lots to ask. So I guess we'll see what we can fit in. Um. I wanted to ask you. I guess. Well. Two questions. Uh. Number one. I guess we wanted to hear a little bit more about your life. From. I mean, you mentioned your involvement in 1967. I guess post 1967. It's a huge amount of history, but let's say post-1967 until almost, let's say, today. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, after, once things in Israel and the Medina started to develop more, um, obviously there was conflict and wars, but once life became more day-to-day, -day, what was your life like? Well, I'll tell you, um, as a result of my um, interrupted education in Britain, I had no qualifications. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what, I didn't know what it was called. Um, I, I had to discover what it was called, what I wanted to do. Um, so we left Lovey after about two years. Um, I don't want to lay blame on anybody, but I, I, it was Edna who quite rightly said, I haven't come to live in the kibbutz in order to be, uh, to, to be a cook in the kitchen. I'd hoped for something more challenging than that. 
And I, m- I remember that, that's right, I, I, about half, four months after I became an Aliyah, I was called to the army for a while, only for about four months because I'd already been in the British Army. And when I came home, I said to her, no, before, when, I, when I come home and I next see you, I want to ask you, do you want to stay or not stay in the kibbutz? And she said, no. And I asked her why, and she said, because I don't want to be, be, be a cook in somebody's kitchen for the rest of my life. This, this isn't what I thought I'd be in the kibbutz. She was also rather upset with the way the children were being handled in the Beit Yeladim and so on. So we didn't waste any time at all, and we left La Vie with a hundred lira in my pocket. That's all I had. Because what did I have from Britain? Nothing. Um, so they gave us a hundred lira. And I was very, very fortunate that someone who I'd met before, Yoska Shapira, is, um, knew we had a good relationship, heard that the American and Canadian women's Mizrahi was building or had built a community center in Haifa and they were looking for someone to run it. And he said, I've got the guy for you. And not only was he run it, but in the building there was a small apartment. It was, we had somewhere to live, 100 shekels in my pocket, I had a deal in my pocket, and I had a job. And I had a very, very interesting experience of running this community center, which was probably the first community center in England. The idea being that it started with Ganyi Ladim and it ended with senior citizens. Oh, uh, what they call the golden age. It had American money, Canadian money. It was well-funded. Not that they gave much of us scored, but it was still well-funded. We could run the place properly. And it became madly popular, particularly amongst young adults. We used to have programs. People used to come from Tel Aviv. It became very much the, the post-Benair Kiva um, gathering place. You see, I, I always think that the big mistake was in Israel was that once you were... 18 and joined the army, there was nothing. Uh, there was, well, there was something called, um, uh, I don't remember what it was called, but it was really nothing of any significance. So we gave the high fights, these young, young adults, and we had programs for all ages. So I say from children, young kids to old age. And it was a thriving experience and a very rewarding experience. After about two years, we got a Sochnut Shikun, Ramot Renes, and we moved from there to Achuzah, and life became very fulfilling, uh, challenging and fulfilling. Our um, children, the old second one, Eddie, was born when we were living there, and, um, and so on. Uh, it, was, it was a great experience, um, which continued until 1970. Um, in 1970, um, again, how you remember details, it's amazing. As we talk, um, Edna and I were sitting eating our evening meal when the phone went, and she took the phone and she said, Uzi Narkis wants to speak to you. Uzi Narkis wants to speak to me? You know, you know the name Uzi Narkis? Uzinakis, first of all, was the commander of the Jerusalem Front in the Six-Day War, and he was one of the small group of Palmachnikim who entered the old city uh, in a a failed attempt to reinforce, and they were then withdrawn. Anyway, he said, come with the Bay Uzinakis, blah, 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 blah. And he would say, Shatati Salah, so the bit was Shlichot. He said, I want you to go to America on Shlichot. 
called <laughs> me, little me. <laughs> anyway, Bikitsu, uh, 1970, Edna and I, and three children by then set out and we spent three years in Philadelphia as Ali Ashlichim for Pennsylvania uh, New Jersey and Delaware three three count three of the of the uh, counties in, in America and um, again I mean a whole new life began for me as a result of which when I came, came back from oh yeah before that something else had happened um, I when I was still running this Beit Hanor in Haifa, um, a Fakir from Misrad Achinuch, who's in charge of the youth department, contacted me and he said, I want you to go to America on a study program. Of course, it was a, a wonderful thing. Uh, under the auspices of the Fulbright program, and I spent uh, academic year in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and that's where I first heard of and got to understand the concept of social work and realized that working in a, in a community center was one section of, of uh, community work, of working in um, uh, of social work. Um, so I came back and uh, to my enormous pleasure discovered that Haifa University had just opened us, well, it was still a branch of the Hebrew University, was just opening a school of social work. And of course I signed on and did the program, working full time and still did the program, you know, that, that was the system of those days. And um, I got a degree in social work. And when later, later on went on to Barilan, got an MA in social work. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed that thing. And, and um, when I came back from Shikhut from Philadelphia, I was asked to take charge of the uh, social work unit for the north of Israel. Um, and suddenly found myself with half the country because the Olim it was for Olim Hadashim mm -hmm. and at least 50% were being sent to the north mainly Russians later on Ethiopians and so on and that was a very rewarding uh, experience for me uh, from the point of view of, of, the, uh, of the professional experience of working with people using interpreters because these people didn't know any Hebrew but we're using Russian and Ethiopian interpreters and so on. An amazing experience. Um, which then continued, and, you know, for, for some years. Um, and uh, until I retired, actually, until 1995. And then I decided that um, the next thing I'm going to do is to volunteer. And I will remember May the 8th, 1945, when all our kids in Benekiba, I was 15 at the time, we gathered at Trafalgar Square and danced the night away. And in the morning, my, I came back home, my father asked him where I'd been, and I told him. And he said to me, I want you to bring me your school atlas. And he showed me the 22 miles that separated us from France. And so I want you to always remember that this is all that separated us from the, from the Shoah. And when I retired and I thought of something to volunteer, I thought Yad Vashem would be an ideal thing. And I did until, uh, until Corona, until I became ill with Corona and, and volunteered with her all the time. And happily, Ellie, one of my sons, who worked for 
one of these security organizations and had retired. They retired him young. There he took over and he now he now works for Yad Vashem all the time. Do you have any, do you have any uh, interesting stories or interactions you have with VIPs that came to visit? Oh. <laughs> We've already heard about you uh, <laughs> making it clear to the British uh? General. You already told us a story about making it clear to the British General that... Yeah. Oh, the British General. Yeah. Yeah. I told you that one. Yeah. 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 I remember another one of a guy who was the... He was the president of one of the... Chad of one of the African countries. And at the end of the tour... He asked me how old I was, and I said, oh, it's been 81, 82. And he put his hand in my shoulder, and he said, do you mind being photographed with me? I said, no, it would be a great honor, blah, blah, blah. And you know, the official photographers take photo, took photographs. I'd never seen them, by the way. And um, he said to me, I tell you, I want to show my wife that I actually stood next to somebody over the age of 80, because I'd never seen anyone over the age of 80 before. And I asked him, what was life expectancy in your country? He said, 65 is considered to be very old. <laughs> yeah. And we know, sometimes it sinks in that... Uh, we were talking, uh, before we started the recording, talking about some of the, the previous guests we've had on the podcast. And a, a couple of months ago, we had the privilege to interview uh, Natan Zhiransky and Sharon Shalom, and Ole from Ethiopia now making waves in, in Israeli society. And I think the most powerful question, at least for me, that we asked them was, you know, when Natan Sharansky was sitting in solitary confinement for many years, and when Sharon Shalom was sitting in, in Ethiopia, dreaming of Israel, if they look back now, has Israel lived up to, ex to their expectations? Has, has, is the country they live in now, the country that they've both helped build, um, something that they're proud of? And I'd like to ask you the same question. As someone who, uh, you know, as, as you say, was, was out of the ordinary growing up as, as a religious Zionist Jew in, in the UK, who came here at the first opportunity, whose, whose family sacrificed as, as much as, as it's possibly able to for the country, um, and then you've dedicated your life to making it better. When you look around now, is, the, is Israel the country you dreamed it would be? Is it something that you're proud of? Is it, has it lived up to your dreams? No, it's a hundred times more than I ever dreamed it would be. When I think of Hungary, Israel of the 1950s, 1960s when we, and so on, it, it, it is an amazing, um, I can only call it a miracle. There's no other way to describe it. From all points of view, with all its problems and all its arguments and so on and so forth, I mean, if my dad, the Chonid Bacha, were alive today, see his grandson, the Chavek Knesset, you know, they said, oh, no, as they say, it doesn't, it doesn't happen by accident. It, it, it is an amazing and a miraculous country. And you mentioned Sharansky, and I'll tell you the story of two refusniks. One was Sharansky, and the other one is a Manko Yosef Mendelevich, I don't know anything to you. Well, Sharansky and I, well, I was actually in South Africa for about close to two years, and uh, it was the custom in those days to send VIP Israelis around the world to speak and to encourage people and so on. And 
Um, it was just before the 1994 elections, um, which was the first free elections in South Africa. And I were, uh, we went in, in pairs, my, 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 my uh, couple, my Prabhu Sharansky, and I remember picking him up in this hotel. Uh, they put him up in the best hotel in Johannesburg, Magielo, and uh, I arranged to come and pick it up at nine o'clock in the morning, whatever, and uh, asked where it was, staying which room, and they told me, I knocked on the door, and somebody said, Tikanes, uh, or come in. And there was Sharansky in bed in the pajamas, which is a little bit, you know, which you don't expect. Anyway, we spent three or four days together going around, and he, he said to me, there's one thing I want you to do. I want you to take me to at least one prison. I said, what for? He said, when I was in prison in the Soviet Union, I could never even imagine that prisoners would be given the right to vote in elections. He said, this is something I have to see. So we also went to, amongst other things, we went to all of the prisons. Um, that was Shuransky. Then there's the story of Mendelevich, Joseph Mendelevich. Joseph Mendelevich, when I was in Schlichort in England, um, he was again one of the people who came as a guest lecturer. And, um, uh, and we went to JFS, no, no, uh, uh, to, to Hasmoneum, to speak to the senior boys in Hasmoneum. And um, uh, as we came into the assembly hall, I came with, uh, uh, with Mendelevich and the headmaster of the school at the time, I don't remember who his name was. And as we came in, the, the hall was full of, of the boys of the school, of whom many in Ben Akiva, and some were in the women's gallery up, up the top, and they took out Israeli flags and began to show, and the Manayela of the school was very upset. And he, he went like this with his arms, he said, we don't believe in cheap symbols, we don't believe in cheap symbols. And the boys began to clap and they were waving the flags. And then, um, ben, then Mendelevich asked for silence. And he said, cheap symbols, cheap symbols, his voice rose. And he took out from his pocket a matchbox on which was an Israeli flag. And he said, you see this cheap symbol? This cheap symbol kept me alive when I was in isolation cell in the Soviet Union. Don't call this a cheap symbol. And of course, the, 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 the boys went crazy, you can imagine. And the poor, the poor Manila of the school was somewhat embarrassed for the stuff he could do. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we've covered events from before, I guess, Hey E.R. Tafshin Chet, right? 1948. Into almost... Uh, contemporary times till today. Looking back at all of that, is there a message you would give to our listeners around the world for this Yomatsmut? Well, I think that the thing that you, we, must, we must try and get the, the, at least the Jewish world, but also not only, but particularly the Jewish world, to understand where we are today. That we are today a powerful nation, a proud nation, a nation that can stand up tall and uh, not take anti-Semitism for granted. Um, if I was called a Christ killer when I was a kid in school, there was nothing more I could do except run home and ask my mum, who's Christ? And 
I didn't kill anybody. What do they want from me? I mean, I literally, this is literally what I said. My mother reminded me of this years later. Um, and uh, this is all due to the fact of... We, we worked hard. It didn't, it didn't come on its own. Uh, Israel today didn't just happen like, you know, uh, there's prosperity in, I don't know, in Europe today. Um, it came because of hard work, because the Jews said, we will defend ourselves, but whilst defending ourselves, we will build and build and build, and we won't stop building. And people like, of my generation, remember the, prim the primitive conditions of the country, not just the kibbutzim, but in the towns too, when, as I think I mentioned earlier on, uh, you had a ration of one egg a week um, when I first got here in 1950 to what's happening in Israel today. We have to be very, very proud and uh, ensure that Israel becomes a magnet. It's always been a magnet to certain types, but to far more Jews than, 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 than have come up till now. I mean, even now with this uh, crisis in U Ukraine and so on, I think 3,000 came, of whom 1,000 went straight back. I don't know if you read the statistics. A third of those who came because of the invasion of Ukraine, a third of them went back within a month. I'm talking about Jews who came to, you know, there's something wrong there, something badly wrong. And I think we also, we can't be complacent about this. We have to work harder to bring the message forward. This is our home, friends. Anywhere else you're a guest. You, you can be the, the presence of the Prime Minister of wherever you want to be. It's still not your home. Your home is here. Um, and if you can't come for one reason or another, make sure your children, your grandchildren come. I think that's the most important message which we have to punch forward all the time. Wow. Well, um, <laughs> we'll leave it there for this, uh, for this episode. Um, there's... We could probably do a whole series of episodes. Um, I'm sure there's lots more to talk about, but obviously our listeners can, um, if they want to know more about Esther's story, can read your book, An Unlikely Heroine, about your sister Esther. If they want to know more about Yehuda's story, they can read The Prime Minister's, published by Quarren Publishers through the Toby Press. Um, but it was, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to tell us a bit of your story, Asha, um, hearing from some of your memories. is like a really incredible way to prepare for this year's Yom Azikoran, Yom Azma. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being patient. <laughs> so that's what we've got time for for this episode of the Corin Podcast. Um, if you'd like to be in touch with us uh, about anything to do with Corin or the podcast itself, you can reach us at podcast.corinpub.com or on social media at Corin Publishers. If you're listening to this uh, the day it comes out, you can get a special 15% off everything at corinpub.com, especially for Yom Hartzmoot. Um, and you can use promo code podcast at checkout for an additional 10% off uh, on top of that. Um, we want to extend another huge thank you to uh, Asher Kalingold for inviting us into his home uh, and spending so much time with us. Um, although this was a long episode, the conversation we had with him was was much longer um, and Arie and I left uh, in absolute awe of the man um, and everything that he was saying. Um, so I suppose the only thing left is to wish all of our listeners a Chag Ha'atzmaut Sameach, a happy Israel Independence Day, um, and we look forward to seeing you next time.